Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thanks, like Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 331st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by Ahima. And returning this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Welcome back. Erica, you have been missed. And I miss you all, too. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everybody. This morning, our lead story is about the controversy surrounding text messaging of medical records. Rose Dunn is standing by with that report. Uh, also on the broadcast is my friend, Dr. Tracy Sanson. She'll be reporting on physician burnout. Social Determinants of Health continue to be a very hot topic. Alan Fink-Samdick is standing by with that report. Senior health care consultant Terry Fletcher reports on the continuing controversy of medical necessity versus medical decision-making. Indeed. And later in the broadcast, we're going to return to your popular talkback segment. As I said, Erica, you have certainly been missed. We have much to report this morning during this broadcast, and we'll be in with Dr. Larry Field. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University inviting you to register for Thursday's webcast on how to code and document malnutrition accurately. To learn more, see the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Hey, good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everybody. Um, Today's topic is very interesting uh, to me as far as texting goes, Um, being a former chief medical officer and hospitalist. And finding, you know, going through all the accreditation standards and different ways that orders are accepted, whether they're accepted via fax, handwritten, verbal, meaning someone standing right next to you, or over the telephone. And the controversy over texting is very perplexing and why CMS really doesn't like it, since CMS forced us to go to computerized physician online ordering otherwise known as CPOE, because the LeapFrog group found there was a 40% uh, risk reduction in errors if physicians entered their own orders. And there are apps that are currently available to provide uh, HIPAA-compliant transmission of information. So if you're a nurse up on the floor and you wish to text a doctor uh, information with the patient name, room number, et cetera, you can do that HIPAA-compliantly, and the physician within that app can text you back HIPAA compliantly. So it's very perplexing on why this is such a difficult issue if we want physician access 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, and we want it within a certain time period. Texting sure seems like a winner in the long run if some of the technical issues on tying to a patient or how it that order gets entered into the exact medical record rather than being transposed again by a nurse, et cetera. But either way, um, it would be in the physician's own writing. It would be dated and timed and easily tracked. So hopefully CMS will move along and come into the digital age and not still remain in the 1990s. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Field. Uh, no promises being made there. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is a treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday. It's July 10, 2018, and you're listening to the 331st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. 
Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHEMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Have you heard? It's happening again. The 2019 ICD-10 code updates are here. AHEMA has more than 20 coding experts currently working to review all code updates in their entirety. And they are creating webinar training to ensure you and your staff are prepared for success. In-depth, on-demand training webinars are available for ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, and specialties, including inpatient physical rehab, long-term care, physicians, clinical documentation improvement, and auditors. Purchase as an individual or for your entire organization at ahima.org slash code updates. Thank you, Clark Anthony. We continue our reporting on the controversy surrounding medical necessity versus medical decision-making. Here now with that report is nationally recognized coding documentation authority, Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, and good morning, everyone. This week, I was invited back to clarify a position I had taken after our article series on the pitfalls of an E&M audit. I had taken the position on medical decision-making in the E&M record being the overarching criteria for choosing an E&M level of service. Well, of course, that opened the floodgates, as E&M rule interpretations always do. So I wanted to state my case so that you can follow my thought process as I audit and the perception of many payers, including Medicare and some commercial plans. Now, I'm aware of the Social Security Act and Medicare Manual's definition of medical necessity. But with definitions like that, it's no wonder medical necessity is, is, is a much-used but often misunderstood concept, not to mention with healthcare organizations facing mounting pressure from pay-for-performance directives. The confusion is bound to get worse. The government's definition of medical necessity is about payment, not necessarily about patient care. And this is an important distinction, especially from an auditing and coding perspective, and one that must be made clear in discussion with providers. So perhaps the best way to clarify medical necessity is to let's agree on what it's not. It's not a clinical or, pa- and, or patient care description. In fact, it's a coverage and payment concern. So what I mean by that is when a physician wants to order a test for a patient and the reason for the test is not part of the patient's contract coverage or the diagnosis to support the medical necessity of the order is not on an approved list, we then as medical professionals try and explain the medical necessity issue to physicians and there's a, usually a look on the provider's face that says, you know, why are you questioning my clinical expertise when you are in the business end of medicine and not the clinical side? Well, that's a tough question to respond to until, again, you look at how medical necessity is tied to payment and contract language. For evaluation and management services, the medical necessity criteria are even less clear. Auditors know that the three key components of history, exam, and medical decision-making usually determine the level of service a provider may bill. But then we have the arrival and the climate of EHRs, and their easy-to-check-off boxes introduce new problems associated with cloning and over-documentation of history and exams. This is where I believe the disconnect is, and maybe where the controversial feedback I received on the medical decision-making versus medical necessity criteria question came from. When I mentioned the overarching criteria being the medical decision-making in my last Talk 10 Tuesday spot, I actually calculated my comments. I wanted to spark this discussion, and I did, for sure. Medical decision-making has a direct link to the medical necessity of the patient E&M encounter. To give providers the best shot at meeting medical necessity requirements, keep the following in mind for these considerations. The overarching criteria for code selection must be medical necessity, but... Medical necessity is best supported in medical decision-making documentation. So in other words, medical decision-making should be one of the two key components to support a level of service for established patient visits, 
Now, I did not say it's mandated to be. I'm explaining that to link the medical necessity requirement to medical decision-making would be the logical way to support medical necessity and pass your audit. This mindset should be applied to the new patient encounters as well. You can find specific examples in my recent article, Medical Decision-Making versus Medical Necessity, on the homepage of icd10monitor.com. Finally, be aware that some payers may have specific rules regarding medical decision-making as a must for one of the required components for established patient visits. But I believe it's up to interpretation of the rules, but it's also impossible to support medical necessity without documenting that through the medical decision-making process. We invite you to read more about the topic of medical necessity versus medical decision-making in our ICD-10 Monitor article that was posted this morning on ICD-10Monitor.com. Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. The new Z codes described in the 2019 proposed inpatient perspective payment system are generating a lot of attention. To explain more, here is Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you so much. Well, good morning, all. So, the social determinants drive poor health outcomes and increased costs. This we know, but we also know coverage and reimbursement must expand from CMS to insurers, but how? Well, several things are on the horizon. First, by now, everyone should know about those ICD-10Z stress codes, Z55 to 65. They focus on the social determinants. Including them in administrative claims data allows direct analysis of a patient's social environment with demographic and clinical factors. These can be related to utilization and financial outcomes. The main codes target persons with potential health hazards related to socioeconomic and psychosocial circumstances. The subcodes go deeper. Their use and reimbursement rely on non-clinical documentation of the interprofessional team, not only physicians, case managers, social workers, nurses. Simply heed that old mantra of document, document, document. Over 50% of EHR products now allow for that specific documentation and certainly use those codes. You don't know how? Seek guidance. It lives everywhere, including some prior 10 Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts and news. There are upcoming webinars on the topic and some websites. Second, a new CMS regulation for Medicare Advantage beneficiaries permits coverage of non-traditional or primary health-related benefits if they increase health and improve quality of life. Outcomes show big dollars saved by addressing social determinants. Montefiore Health System in the Bronx invested in housing and decreased emergency department visits and unnecessary hospitalizations, a 300% return on investment. In the current value-based climate, it's hoped these CMS coverage changes will continue to yield return on investment, plus dividends for organizations and providers of care. Over 50% of payers integrate social determinants into their benefits with significant savings per member. WellCare Health Plans developed their health connections program to address vulnerable patients' needs. Linking beneficiaries to social services or helping pay for their utilities saw savings of $2,601 per member annually. ACOs have jumped on the social determinants train as well. Chicago-based Advocate Healthcare launched two quality improvement initiatives to target malnutrition and food insufficiency. Persons with elevated risk scores receive oral nutritional supplement within two days of admission. 
an enhanced nutrition program for high-risk patients, provides nutrition education, post-discharge instructions, follow-up calls, and coupons for retail oral supplements. Within six months, the ACO reduced healthcare costs by $3,800 per patient, $4.8 million in savings. Hospital readmission rates also dropped for the population. Third, the proposed rule for Medicare's inpatient prospective payment system for fiscal year 2019 shows some promise. CMS will incorporate the socioeconomic status of dual eligible patients toward readmissions. Remember, these beneficiaries are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid. If a person has Medicare and full Medicaid coverage, most of their health care costs are likely covered. How does the new rule address socioeconomic status? The 21st Century Cures Act required CMS develop a methodology for the hospital readmissions reduction program. It allowed for separate comparison of hospitals based on the facility's proportion of patients duly eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, aka socioeconomic status. In the proposed 2019 rule, CMS clarifies definition of dual eligible patients, the proportion of dual eligibles, and the applicable period for dual eligibility. While this payment adjustment isn't based on the full scope of social determinants, it recognizes socioeconomic status as a key factor in the healthcare equation. Many know the mantra, where CMS goes, private insurers follow. For the social determinants and their impact on industry costs, the evidence is clear and the race is on. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Ellen. It really sounds like noting, documenting, and addressing social determinants really actually improves patient care. That's very important. That was Ellen Fink-Samnick. Ellen is an award-winning industry expert and author. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, very much. And Ellen, thanks again for uh, a great report. And by the way, you can read Ellen's excellent article on social determinants of health. We posted her story on our homepage at icd10monitor.com. We continue our reporting on physician burnout. Nearly two-thirds of U.S. doctors feel burned out or depressed or both. And since those feelings affect how they relate to patients, it's important that we continue to cover the subject. And reporting on this dire situation is former emergency department physician turned consultant Tracy Sanson, MD. Good morning, Tracy. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. I'm still doing emergency medicine, so I do both, uh, which is where this really started I'll give you a little bit of my story. I felt a clear call from my medical community. Uh, You're right. So many physicians are living with pain and in darkness. And the more people begin to open up about uh, the evolving challenges facing us in healthcare, the more I begin to realize that we needed to find solutions uh, to change the conversation and to relieve uh, the stress. So I began to ask, what could I teach? What are the skills that we could use to respond to this pain and the conversation that I'm hearing in our community? And so it was in, from this need that I created my new business, which is dedicated to giving healthcare professionals an array of tools to stay resilient and start building lives of joy, integrity, and balance. I asked, what would happen if we really began to practice caring for our souls as physicians? the way we care for the bodies and the spirits and our patients uh, and their families? What if we accepted that our medical education was imperfect? What if we accepted the responsibility of bolstering our own resilience and spirit? And what if physicians began to lift each other? 
these questions are important um, about personal development. And what's been so fascinating and I think cool in all of this to learn is that these skills are learnable and they're essential to all of us and to anyone's growth and well-being. As physicians, we're taught to deal with disease processes, many of which we will never personally be impacted by. Our patients routinely face fear, frustration, desperation, and death, and we show them compassion. We offer them what serenity we can. We work to ease their sufferings when they're faced with loss or difficult choices. Well, healthcare professionals are faced with the fragility of life every day. We live in an existence in which tragedy can be deafening, while the positive messages that are out there sometimes are merely a whisper. So this mental and emotional toll can be significant, yet we don't take a fraction of that care with ourselves and our personal lives. We also experience pain and fear. We suffer losses. Healthcare professionals need the compassion we so readily offer our patients. And I'm passionate about recognizing, supporting, and celebrating the humanity of physicians in whatever chapter of their life they may be living. And you're correct, Erica, we could profoundly impact the healthcare community or in, and in turn the care of our patients if we focused on healing, growing, and becoming the truest versions of ourselves. I'm determined to teach physicians the importance of choosing their own physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health because our contentment and strength comes from within and then radiates out to all that we touch. So focusing on personal development and resilience is a gift to ourselves that will reverberate through our practices and through every patient we interact with. Love and kindness for ourselves and belief in our purpose will bring physicians into a healthier point in their lives. So we must create work environments that are supportive and encourage the development of resilient skills. Healthcare professionals are stretched to a breaking point, and yet we persevere. So my goal is to support physicians in recognizing and celebrating their strengths and building healthier lives and careers. I'm starting with physicians because that's a community and the group that I know, but we all recognize that all of healthcare, the whole community is having a tough time. And so we'll generalize that out into beginning with nurses and the other paraprofessionals staff and support that all work with patients. You know, that's very interesting that you were saying that, Tracy, because as you were talking, I was thinking that all of our listeners probably could benefit from something like this. It's kind of like when you tell your kids you need to find balance, and I think it's important for all of us. That was my friend, Tracy Sanson. Tracy and I did residency together. Today, Tracy is the founder and president of Tracy Sanson, MD, LLC, and is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Reamer, and thank you very much, Dr. Sanson. We appreciate having you on the broadcast. Our lead story this morning is about another controversy, texting medical orders. Here now reporting on this trending topic is nationally recognized HIM authority, Rose Dunn, the legendary Rose Dunn. Good morning, Rose. Welcome to the program. Good morning, everyone. I recently saw this article that summarized a survey that the Institute of Safe Medication Practices conducted in 2017. It had several findings that I thought would be of interest to our Talk 10 listeners who may have missed it. And by the way, the, the link to the summary is in the handout section on the website. Last year, the Institute surveyed individuals in acute, ambulatory, long-term care, and other clinical settings 
about the texting of medical orders in healthcare. 778 individuals responded, the majority of which were nurses and pharmacists. Of course, the issue at hand was the convenience perceived by tech-savvy healthcare professionals versus the informality of documentation, data security, and patient safety risks. The majority, 55% of all the patient safety risk officers that responded, believed medical orders should never be texted, and 53% said their organization's policy prohibited it. But nearly half of the pharmacists and 35% of the nurses reported that medical orders are regularly texted regardless of the policy. Of those respondents that thought text orders should be allowed, they too thought orders for chemotherapy and complex order sets should be prohibited. Among facilities that did permit text orders, 69% of the facilities allowed the use of standard cell phones. So that makes me wonder if those cell phones are encrypted. I certainly hope they are. More than half of the respondents asked uh, had asked the texting prescriber, had to get back to the texting prescriber with clarification questions about the text they received. I don't think that's a surprise. Unfortunately, when physicians text orders, it results sometimes in more work and more opportunity for misentry for the receiving nursing or pharmacy staffs who must enter those orders into the medical record and often do not identify them as text orders. In a few instances, according to the survey, less than 2%, the texting technology actually entered it directly into the record. So we need to find out more about that technology specifically. The texting challenges experienced included the phone's auto-correction of medical terms, abbreviation, drug names, and patient names. Well, good grief. I know how auto-correct apps uh, do some of my uh, texting, and ooh, that's nasty. Another issue was just plain old textees that could not be interpreted clearly by the recipient. The third issue was misidentification of the patients, and Dr. Field and I talked about that a little bit earlier this morning, especially those patients with similar last names. And the last two common issues were misspellings and incomplete orders. Let's be realistic. It's unlikely that texting will go away and it will probably expand. HIM professionals should partner with nursing, pharmacy, and risk management to address how these messages will be handled. It is obvious that a written policy is not going to stop it. Having it accurately reflected in the record as a text message should be easy to accomplish. Plus, we have to keep in mind that CMS's December 2017 memo to state survey agencies said that texting of patient orders is still prohibited. To top that off, accrediting agencies have also banned the use of text messaging for treatment orders. So what are we to do? I guess the final score here, here is technology one, regulations zero. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the Chief Operations Officer at First Class Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Rose, thanks very much for reporting on this latest trend, text messaging and medical records. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Returning once again is Dr. Erica Reamer with her popular talkback segment. Erica, what's on your mind today? Chuck, I am envious of our friend Ron Hirsch that he has so much time to read and stay current on latest issues. 
You recently asked me about a post from Hospital Performance, and we're going to uh, post an article with the link um, after uh, Talk 10 Tuesday today uh, regarding acute respiratory failure and airway protection. And I wanted to expand on what Dr. Hasabella wrote in that. A key point is where he says, the fact that the patient is not awake enough to maintain an open airway to promote gas exchange implies to him the presence of acute respiratory failure. I think his example of a patient with encephalopathy is less likely to be unable to maintain an open airway than to not be breathing enough to sustain life. The way I think about, quote, airway protection, um, close quote, and after I'm done talking, I'd love to hear what uh, Tracy's um, view is on this as a, a continuing practicing emergency physician, is that the patient's airway quite literally needs protecting. It is endangered by blood or secretions or vomitus or inflamed tissue or a foreign body. If you insert a tube from the outside to the inside to open up the upper airways and the patient does not need supplemental oxygen or increased ventilation, then to me, that is airway protection. Sometimes patients have to be placed on a ventilator because they need to be sedated and paralyzed to tolerate being intubated for their airway protection. But if we did it to them intentionally, it isn't considered respiratory failure. Legitimate airway protection is a pretty rare occurrence. The issue could be upper airway, pulmonary, cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, neurologic, or hematological, but the ultimate consequence of respiratory failure is characterized as inadequate gas exchange by the respiratory system, which, left unchecked, will result in eventual incompatibility with life. The question I tell my students to ask themselves is, can this patient's respiratory system oxygenate and or ventilate without my assistance? A nasal trumpet or an endotracheal tube, for instance, giving safe passage to ambient gas exchange without intervention by bagging or electricity, and by that I mean CPAP, BiPAP, or a ventilator, is solely airway protection. If additional assistance is necessary to support oxygenation or ventilation, you should consider it respiratory failure. In order to determine whether there's acute hypoxic or hypercapnic respiratory failure, you need to allow the oxygen level to drop or the carbon dioxide to rise. But if the patient is not breathing sufficiently, like in an overdose or due to a brain bleed, wouldn't it be kind of malpractice to wait for them to develop the blood gas arrangements just to justify the formal diagnosis? You all know I am very supportive of ICD-10 specificity, but this is a situation where I would declare acute respiratory failure and let hypoxic and hypercapnic be left undetermined and save the patient's life. The purpose of respiration is to exchange gases. Oxygenation is bringing oxygen in from the inspired air. And ventilation is offloading carbon dioxide, which has been generated during cellular respiration. If a patient is hypoventilating, he is likely to become both hypoxic and hypercapnic without intervention. Dr. Hasabala's sample of documentation suggesting, um, suggested explaining your thought process by documenting something along the lines of, Acute respiratory failure secondary to inability to maintain an open airway due to encephalopathy. I would amend it to read, acute respiratory failure due to central hypoventilation from encephalopathy. If a patient is truly requiring airway protection, I would document intubation for airway protection due to facial trauma, for instance. The bottom line is, if the patient needs 
non-iatrogenically mandated oxygenation or ventilation, you are dealing with some type of respiratory failure. Thanks, Ron. Keep bringing important articles to my attention. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And uh, thank you, Dr. Hirsch, for bringing that article to everyone's attention. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a roundtable discussion on today's Talk 10 2C and gathered around our virtual roundtable for a couple of minutes. Dr. Larry Field, Dr. Tracy Sanson, Rose Dunn, Terry Fletcher, Alan Fink, Samnick, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, let's begin with a couple of questions that we see in the chat box. Barbara wants to know what CPOE stands for. It's Computerized Physician Order Entry. Barbara, the next question is, if texting isn't secure, couldn't it result in a potential HIPAA violation? Good question. Rose, would you like to take that one? That was one of the concerns that the Institute identified is the uh, data security if it's uh, going through a a non-secured portal of some sort. You know, it's actually quite interesting. Um, I work with some uh, places that use uh, like MatchMD, you know, one of those apps where Mm -hmm. it's supposedly HIPAA compliant. I find it somewhat interesting, and I have a question. Are there ways to interface with your order entry system so that you can actually do it from your phone as opposed to having to have an, an intermediary like a, you know, texting it to somebody who's going to put it in, which is kind of like how we used to do verbal orders. The survey identified that about 2% of the respondents indicated they had such a technology that allowed the text to actually go directly into the electronic health record so you don't have that um, transcription uh, error opportunity. And I would uh, presume, and again, I'm assuming it, that that mode would be secured. And I would think that that would be something that you'd want to, you know, you would want Epic or whoever to start getting the, the EMRs to start getting it that functionality because it seems like that really would eliminate any chance for somebody misunderstanding or um, I agree with you when I talk about my, you know, when I, when I dictate into my phone, I find all sorts of very interesting things after I've already pressed send, and I have to hit that little asterisk and, and respell it. We're done, Chuck. We've used our time up. Sorry. Back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much, and thank you, Rose, as well. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 331st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and Eric and I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Larry Field, Dr. Tracy Sanson, Rose Dunn, Terry Pletcher, Alan Fink, Sam, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. I look forward to having you back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer and everyone here at ICT10Monitor.com and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD10 Monitor.